every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name is Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, and talking with me tonight is uh, Vicky Willis-Navara, contributor. Let me see if I've got all of this. This is a, you've got quite the CV here. So, oh, thanks. Contributor to Reading Joss Whedon. At Home in the Whedonverse, and the recently released, I guess recently, last year released, uh, Rutledge Companion to Popular Music and Humor, um, co-editor of the collection Geek Rock and Exploration of Music and Subculture, uh, and you also happen to be a board member of Dragon Con's uh, Comics and Popular Arts Conference, which I know I said this last time you were on, and this was two years ago, but that still guarantees you a spot on my gobbledygeek podcast. I don't know why that hasn't happened yet, but you have a, a foot in the door for that other podcast. Cause we talk about comics all the time. We do need to make that happen. Yes. Yes, we absolutely do. Um, anyways, two years, two years gone by, but thank you so much for, uh, for coming back and joining me. How are you doing? How are you surviving the apocalypse? Um, Ooh, well, there's been a great deal of television, although, oddly enough, there's not been a great deal of Buffy watching until recently, <laughs> but we've gone through Star Trek Next Generation, Wow, uh, which was excellent, and currently we've been re-watching Community and The Simpsons, which oh my, has been really fun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I don't remember how many seasons of Community there were. I know there's like 300 seasons of The Simpsons, so good luck with that. We've been going through, there's like a best of oh, list okay. that we've been going through. Gotcha. But I do, there is a part of me now that I've seen it, I want to just go through like from the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, pandemic, we're going to be here for a while. Uh, yeah, it does, <laughs> it shows no signs of uh, of stopping, does it? Right. Oh, uh, man. So I just realized uh, when I was putting my notes together earlier that, uh, one of the new characters we're going to meet in the episodes we're discussing tonight, her name is Rona, and that carries an entirely different connotation now um, in the world we're when, living in. Yes. Yeah, in the world we're living in right now, we are all suffering or trying to avoid the Rona. So. I died laughing when they said her name, and I was just, I was like, yep, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had forgotten. I would totally forgotten that name. I feel uh -huh. I think the only two potentials I have any enduring memory of are Vi, because of course it's Felicia Day, um, and uh, Kennedy, because there's yep. so much controversy around Kennedy. But we'll get to that. Yay. Um. Okay. Well, 
Um, I'm glad you're surviving the pandemic. Um, you, you and I are each in, uh, we're in neighboring hotbeds of this uh, hellscape <laughs> that the world is going through right now. Um, I'm in Alabama, you're in Georgia. And uh, so I, we both should count ourselves fortunate that we haven't gotten pulled down into the quagmire of our respective states. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, and I know. so close to Florida. Right. Yes. Oh, man. We are in the <laughs> we are in the pandemic triangle right now. Ooh, that sounds really like scary and like like the Bermuda Triangle. It is really scary. We should be terrified. Yeah. We should be very scared. But uh, yeah, for, fortunately, my wife and I are surviving. Um, I mean, it's day to day, but neither one of us has gotten sick. Knock on wood. So. What are you binge watching? Oh, Lord. I mean, so much. Um, <laughs> most recently, I just binge watched the first season of Cursed on Netflix, which I, I, my brief thoughts, uh, it's a 10 episode season one. It's a retelling of the Arthurian legend from the point of view, casting uh, the Lady of the Lake as the main character. Ooh. Um, so it's super interesting, or I thought it would be super interesting. I'm very much into Arthurian legend. Um, it's 10 episodes. It wasn't until episode eight that I finally started to give a damn. About any of oh, it. it's really it is it's really rough. I almost gave up on it multiple times, but uh, it, about episode eight or nine is when enough stuff finally clicked, and maybe the show got better, or maybe I just cared more. I don't know. But uh, at any rate, by the time the season ended, I was like, okay, I, you know, just a few episodes ago, I wouldn't have admitted this, but I'm kind of in. I'm kind of down on what they're doing here. So. Okay. Hopefully they'll get a season two, but if you decide to check that out, just, just be aware. Skip to the eighth episode. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but just, just, uh, you know, when you're two or three episodes in and you're like, Oh, what is the point? Just stick with it. It gets better. Okay. Um, and then I just binge watched. I'm actually uh, midway through my second watch. So my second binge watch of, uh, the DC universe, animated harley quinn series oh which okay is on, which is on hbo max another thing which i didn't expect to like i mean i i don't have a problem with harley quinn but i'm not a big dc fan and the the most recent animated series that have come out of that camp have not really impressed me so i kind of just watched it to see what the the fuss was about and it was great it was absolutely fantastic i love it oh good to know and that's on DC Universe? No, H HBO Max. Yeah, uh, all the DCU stuff is now on HBO Max. I don't know. I, I think DCU still has its own st streaming, maybe. I don't know if it's switched entirely to HBO Max, but, but HBO Max is how I'm getting it. Okay. So, I think cool. I think possibly they've been released on, on home video at this point. There may be DVD or Blu-ray out there. I'm not 100% sure. But anyways... Uh, my content warning for that would be, my caution for that one would be, it is very, very mature. It is very R-rated. Okay. It's not a it's not a kid's animated program. It is very much an adult show with language and uh, violence, graphic violence, and sexual situations. So. Interesting. Don't... I um, We started watching on DC Universe... Uh, Doom Patrol because I was an extra on it, oh, yeah? and which was super fun. But Doom Patrol was excellent. 
And it was very much like I could see why they wouldn't put it on television, television, why they were releasing it under their own thing. It gave them more freedom to do all sorts of crazy stuff with it. But it was really well done. I I've been wondering if I would check that out. Um, It's also on HBO Max, so that might be a future binge for me. Um, I'm waiting for them to put Swamp Thing on there. Which only oh, ran... it's not on there. I don't think so. I I don't remember seeing it in there, but um, I was really looking forward to that, but didn't I didn't have their streaming service, and then they killed it after one season. So hopefully it will pop up on HBO Max, and I'll get to check it out. Which is absurd. I can't believe they did that. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I've binge watched recently is uh, the second season of uh, Umbrella Academy. Oh, we haven't seen any of that yet. I loved season one. Uh, I thought season one was great. Season two is better. Season, okay. Season two was fantastic. I am taking notes. See, this is all comic book stuff that we could we could talk about on Gobble Geek. Yay! <laughs> so we just that that needs to happen. But um, in the meantime, nobody here is wants to hear me talk about uh, Gobble Geek. They're here to listen to Buffy conversations. So. Let me throw the spoiler warning out in case there are any noobs in the audience. Um, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. Um, We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, which means we're going to spoil things. We're going to spoil all the things. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and ideally Angel the series all the way through at least once, pause this show, go and make your peace with the works of Joss Whedon, come back we'll be here whenever you're ready so with that out of the way uh vicky if you're ready let's go to work let's do it okay and now one more uh one more caveat one more warning and this is as much for you vicky as it is for my listeners um i we are reaching the point in season seven where my eyes are starting to roll (laughs) my eyes are rolling back into my head (laughs) so I guess I want to ask you, what is your feeling on season seven? Like, are you a fan of season seven or are you one of one of us who wasn't really <laughs> big on it? I love season seven. Okay. And I, I love season seven because of all the speeches. Oh no. Like I love all the speech of Fion. Like oh, my it goodness. is like my specializations were literary theory and rhetorical theory so all this and I grew up in Virginia and Virginia had all the like all of the all of the rhetoric, yeah. really, um, all of the political rhetoric. Some of it was great. Some of it wasn't. OK, well, um, I feel like the same could be said about Buffy's speeches. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of them. Yeah, there is a lot of them. Yeah. I feel that that you you could almost I'm like have that in the description of season seven. Get ready for some oratory. <laughs> uh, OK, so um, when when this little podcast project of mine finally got to season seven, um, I was surprised at how much I liked the first four episodes of the season. I had forgotten how strong the season started out and my my memories of season seven were pretty vague but i just remembered not being a fan so the first four episodes i was like wow this is this is great maybe i'm gonna love this maybe i'm you know on my 
on this rewatch, maybe I'll really be down with season seven. Uh, it's gone downhill from there. <laughs> We've now reached the point where I struggle with each one of these episodes. I struggle. I feel like I'm struggling to have anything to say about these. So hopefully I'm, I'm actually thrilled to know that you were a season seven fan. Cause I, that means I get to sit back and relax and let you run the show. <laughs> um, Cause I, I've got some notes. I, I have some thoughts here, but I, I really had to, I really had to reach. Uh, we're, we're in the, we're in the beginning of the end. <laughs> in my opinion, uh, I've, resigned myself to yeah maybe my initial impression of season seven was correct there's some stuff that because like uh i just went in and watched this cold so i didn't watch anything else from season seven or any other buffy just these two episodes as a refresher because i also wanted to see like what that would do to like the watching of it like taking them out of context did anything stand out differently and there was some stuff that just seemed like some really strange choices yeah. How long has it been? How long had it been since you rewatched anything? Like how, how cold did you go into this? Oh, it's been a couple of years at least. Okay. Okay. Um, I just realized being the professional podcaster that I am, that I have yet to name the episodes we're discussing. <laughs> we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about episodes seven, 10, bring on the night and seven, 11, uh, showtime. I had to look, I even forgot the name of the episode. That's how excited I am about these. <laughs> Um, so, um, let's start with bring on the night. Um, yeah, I'm just going to turn it over to you and you can, you can kick off the show. What are your thoughts on bring on the night? One of the things that I noticed going through and watching it again was the choice to make principal wood really ominous. Like you don't know what side he's on. (laughs) Yeah. They've played him really. Like I've I've really enjoyed being reintroduced to Principal Wood up till now, and this is the first time I feel like they really doubled down on the "this guy could be creepy" aspect. Like it was really evident, like when he first—I think it's when he first comes in in this episode, where he is—they've gone to cover up cover up the seal in the basement mm-hmm. of the school, and then Principal Wood just appears totally like in shadow like his face is in shadow and he's holding the shovel and he looks kind of hypnotized and doesn't have a really good reason for being down there right yeah i Uh, mean neither do they i particularly noticed it when uh the second time he pops up in this episode when buffy is doing is googling evil (laughs) and so (laughs) and so he has a conversation with her about uh you know when you when you see true evil you never recover or whatever ridiculous speech he was giving Yeah. and as he's walking away you know he says i was never really into horror movies and um she says well what kind of movies do you like and without turning around so we're seeing his face but she's not he gets this really sinister grin on his face and says i like mysteries i like solving i like finding out at the end what it all meant or something like that and i was like that was pointlessly evil of him like (laughs) why did they why did they give him a, a joker smile there in that moment. It, it really made me wonder if they had like considered different directions for his character that they just ended up not going with. Cause there's so much ambivalence and weirdness there. Yeah. Because I mean, if he knows who he is, then why on earth is he acting like this talking to, and he knows who Buffy is. Why is he just creeping her? Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but that does feel like, I think I've commented on it a few times 
in season seven so far that um, it does feel like there are a lot of things that they were maybe trying out. Like they, in the first couple of episodes, I feel like they tested the waters to see if viewers would be down for a Dawn the Vampire Slayer and her very own Scooby gang, which personally I would have been, but then they, they never pursued that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, there've been a couple things that I've felt like, you know, maybe they were testing them out in the early episodes and they, they focus on something else as the season goes on. So I guess it's possible. But um, other stuff they do, I feel they do pretty well. Like when they go back to the Christmas tree lot mm-hmm. to find the bringer's cave, like they've got all that, like knit, like they referenced previous episodes for that one and got that shored up. Right. So that worked out well. Although that, um, the, uh, cave set just cracks me up. <laughs> Why? Like, it just looks it looks so uh star trek it does yes ex- that's exactly what i was gonna say <laughs> lots of styrofoam rocks yeah and a perfect and, they, and a perfectly flat floor and they've used it you know they used i i assume they used it with uh adam mm-hmm. um i mean the the cheesy sets are part of the charm <laughs> of the show at this point i was like oh look here we are underground with the rocks. So, okay. So <laughs> a lot of my focus on these two episodes is going to be about the ridiculousness of the first evil. But uh, <laughs> before we get into that, let's talk about everything else before I just unload on the first here. Um, but on the note, kind of on the topic of the first, the whole weirdness of Giles, um, this I feel like is intentional. Um, the fact, yes. The fact that... The last time we saw Giles was, I don't remember how many episodes ago, two or maybe even three. I can't remember. And we saw what looked convincingly like he was about to be beheaded. Um, and now he pops up and we gradually learn that, the, you know, the first can only manifest his character as people who have died, uh, cannot physically interact with the, the living world. And so this entire, I think both of these episodes until the alley scene in Showtime which might have been a, an actor mistake. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, for the most part, Giles, ne- he never changes his clothes. He always walks around with his hands in his pockets. He never touches anything. He doesn't hug Buffy. He he doesn't, you know, pick up his briefcase. He, he never physically interacts with anyone or anything in either of these episodes. Which, obviously, was just to make us suspicious of Giles. Yes. And like they they lay that pretty well, that groundwork, I think. To be honest, this is going to be this is going to sound ridiculous. Um to, you know, I I'm claiming to be a professional running a Buffy rewatch podcast and I'm about to claim ignorance. I have no memory of how this plays out. I'm reasonably sure that this is actually Giles and they're just messing with our heads, but honestly, my memory of season 7 is so choppy that that it could be the first like maybe we haven't actually seen the real giles yet i know he's not dead (laughs) which i guess means it can't be the first i just answered my own question but where i'm going with that is it was maybe a little more convincing to me than it should be having seen the season before because i honestly don't remember how it plays out when i watched him come in i paid attention to like him not touching stuff 
-hmm. But only by by the time um, we got to Showtime, I'd already like accepted his presence there. Uh-huh. Because I know, and it's not until another couple episodes, uh, maybe the next episode, when they reveal whether or not it actually is Giles. Okay. And I mean, and it is. Or, yeah. I feel, as I as I was talking through that, I was like, oh yeah, of course it can't be. <laughs> it can't be the first because. I know Giles isn't dead, so. Well, he takes him. Do you remember what happens? He takes the potentials out into the desert. No, I, I literally have no memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly, it's almost like I'm watching it for the first time. Season Ooh. seven is the one that I re that I've I've rewatched the least. Um, like I've, there's probably an episode or two in here, like maybe conversations with dead people that I have rewatched over the years more than once. On the whole, I really think I've only seen the majority of season seven once on its original airing. So I have very, very little solid memory of what actually okay. happens. So so when I gave the spoiler warning at the top of the show, that was for me as well. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay, so let's see what else. Okay, uh, obviously we already we're talking about Giles, so we need to mention the fact that yeah, the potentials are here. Hooray! I guess. Are you a fan of the potentials? I'm kind of like I get it. Like you know, it's it's interesting that and it explains more about the Slayer line and fleshes that out. Although we've never seen the potentials operate like this or on this scale anywhere else in Buffy. Right. Which, okay, fine. You know, uh, give me the, the information at the end. That's cool. <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, it is kind of weird, but most of the potentials are just annoying. It's like most of them don't l like anything really. <laughs> Agreed. Or want to do anything. Agreed. Um, I think it was Eric and I, uh, in our, in our discussion of conversations with dead people, the episode, um, where we were talking about the, a lot of the problem with season seven, at least as far as we were concerned, is that it feels like there's enough, there are enough ideas and enough sort of plot lines that could have fueled two seasons at least, um, so and, and because it's all crammed into the final season and the writers are rushing to give us a satisfying conclusion and all that things get crammed or cut short or you know plot lines are introduced that never really pay off and in particular i'm upset with the payoff that spike getting a soul is you know winds up with like in an ideal world it, season six would have ended with him having his soul returned and then that would be the driving force of the next season <laughs> in my perfect world season seven would be about spike having gotten his soul back but instead Ooh. he's just one of the one of the cogs that is really awkwardly crammed into this first evil storyline i mean how how much screen time do we really need of the first as x trying to torture and or manipulate spike it's just ad nauseum it goes on and on right and i feel the same way about the potentials being worried or upset or mm -hmm. not wanting to be there like there is a lot well i think that ends up more in showtime actually um yeah 
but with the scenes of just like like we get it they're scared <laughs> right yeah and they see... do seem like they're all cogs like they're it seems like every potential is almost like a stock character right that doesn't get fully developed or given the opportunity to develop they're just there to like die or perform a particular function and move the plot forward and i mean i guess all characters perform the function of moving the plot forward in some way but they don't have many other dimensions to them yeah i i can't say too much about this because it ties into the big reveal the one spoiler that i'm holding on to is my controversial opinion on the series finale so i can't talk too much about the potentials and what purpose i think they were meant like why they were brought into this final season. Okay. Um, but the the potentials are certainly one of those concepts, just like Spike. I feel like his storyline could have been the, the overarching either A or B plot of an entire season. The potentials likewise could have been, like it could have been those two storylines. The A plot could be Spike, the B plot could be the potentials or vice versa, and that could be what the entire season was about. But instead, both of those things are introduced and then don't get as much attention as they, as they deserve. And so the potentials come off as just being annoying. And like you said, we don't like we don't get to know any of them enough to ever really care. And when you're winding down a series after seven years and you're trying to pay off all of the, these beloved characters, the Scooby gang, our main heroes, it seems an odd choice to introduce a whole bunch of new characters that are going to stick around for a while. I think, I think the only thing that Molly does is Molly and I could be wrong, which is how interchangeable they are at this point, <laughs> but she's got the last of the watcher files in her backpack. That was, that was Annabelle. That's that, Annabelle. Yeah. The, the very short lived Annabelle. Yeah. Molly didn't even get to do that much. No, no. <laughs> Molly, Molly's, as far as I know, Molly's contribution is a really horrible Cockney accent. Yes. That's, that's what she's here for. Uh, but to be fair, as I said, I don't remember a lot. So maybe, I don't know, other than Kennedy, I don't remember if any of the potentials get any sort of like satisfying arc or even mini arc. Like, I don't know how much character development any of these characters get. Um, not enough would be my assumption. But um, yeah. so at the moment, as, at, at the moment, I would say that um, Molly's role on the show is the Cockney accent, <laughs> just like yeah. just like Eve's role. I mean, it turns out to not actually be Eve. But once we meet Eve, her role seems like, oh, here's the southern one. OK, so we're just going to have a whole bunch of really sort of terrible accents going yep. on. And we get some tokenism yes, with the potentials and Whedon historically uh, over whites Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's particularly evident with the potentials who are supposed to come from all over the world. Right. Well, I mean, I guess he tried to cover his ass by having the first few episodes of the season be um, Buffy's Slayer dreams or whatever, showing her. Uh, the German slayer, the German potential getting killed and the one in Istanbul getting killed. So like all of the, all of the really air quotes, foreign uh, <laughs> potentials are being killed off. So all that's left, like all Giles had time to grab were the ones that were there in England and 
I don't really remember where, where he got Kennedy from, but anyways, no, I agree. It's a, uh, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll get to Rona when we get into the next episode, I guess, but, um, let's see. One of the things that also struck me with this episode that I don't think, um, really struck me as much before are Buffy's dreams of her mother. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, and those are very strange and I don't think, I think they're supposed to be dreams of her mother. I don't think it's supposed to be the first. Well, the, is the, it the small bit of research that I've done? Um, seems to suggest that Joss and the writers have in the past been fairly adamant that that Joyce is meant to be the first. Um, but at least... Uh, so maybe you can square that with Dawn's encounter with Joyce um, in Conversations with Dead People when Joyce appeared in the house to, to Dawn. Sure, okay, I'll buy that that was the first. But the dream Joyce that we keep seeing, that Buffy keeps seeing, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't think that's supposed to be the first because not only does she not really talk the way that the first does with, I guess, maybe the possible exception of the whole evil will always be here speech that she gives Buffy. But even that didn't seem less threatening or ominous and more, you know, <laughs> be reasonable Buffy or, you know, whatever. Um, but mo more importantly, we get several very clear shots so clear like the cinematography here is so clear and so obvious that they had to have intended us to notice that dream joyce touches things including buffy she picks up yes. stuff she hands buffy the book she puts her hand on buffy's shoulder i think she brushes her cheek at some point and yes sure it's dream joyce and if that's if it's dream first maybe the rules work differently in dreams but i just don't think that's i don't think so i think I think they want us to see that and make it, it makes it so obvious that it's doing that to, to differentiate it from the first. So. And, and I, I'm glad these two episodes are together because I feel that there's so much that like goes back and forth between the two, mm -hmm. but everything that Joyce says is the same thing that the, the I tells Giles and Anya in showtime she's not saying anything that's like particularly like thirsty to say right yeah yeah um also worth pointing out um unless this information that i came upon is incorrect please feel free to to <laughs> correct me but as near as i can find out this is the final appearance of christine sutherland I, I apparently we do not get Christine oh. Sutherland as Joyce anymore in the rest of the season. I I don't think we do. Okay. All right. Well, good. Then my information is correct. Um So, are are we are we ready for this to start me down the to to begin the path of me uh, dunking on the first? Yes. Okay. I hate the first. Absolutely. I hate the first. I cannot stand the first. I feel like conceptually it's a good, you know, it, it, it's a good villain. Uh, potentially, ah, see what I did there. Uh, the first could have been pretty cool, but 
it is so mishandled and you know on paper it might sound good but in practice it's very ineffectual and and completely just incompetent like for, so giles describes the first as the source he says you know it has eternities to act and endless resources well yeah it doesn't seem like it, <laughs> it doesn't this does not <laughs> seem like an entity that has had eternities to act and to to come up with these plans and uh, like i can each every episode i can think of a dozen ways that an entity with the first resources and abilities could just dismantle the scoobies easily but it constantly makes stupid ineffectual choices and I, it's just it drives me it drives me nuts it is so annoying i um andrew has a really good point when he says the first doesn't even have a cool name <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah a real villain should be named lex or or B Voldemort. Voldemort, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I I think that's fair because it's it's weird. I feel like they they've got some good ideas, but they have to keep like unfolding the rules. Like the the rules have to like reveal themselves slowly, and the first keeps getting like these constraints of action to kind of explain like why it didn't do anything sooner. Um, because that's what happens in Showtime. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when they um, go see, I know, I know, it's not called Botox's eye. <laughs> no, but that's good. But, but that's what Buffy calls it, and I wrote down the real name somewhere, and I can't remember it. It's, it's Beljox's uh, eye. Yes. <laughs> but Botox is better. <laughs> but like saying that, you know, the reason the first didn't act before was because the forces surrounding the slayer have become disrupted because she was brought back. And I've always, always thought that was so weird because it's not the first time Buffy has come back. Thank you. Okay. So we, I mean, let, these episodes go together. We can just bleed showtime into this discussion as well. Um, there are a number of, uh, incorrect conclusions or questionable conclusions that our heroes come to in both of these episodes. Uh, and one of them is uh, the read that Giles and Anya have on what the, the eye tells them. They seem to believe that what's going on is the Slayer line was disrupted by Buffy being resurrected in season six. And I just don't think that's what's going on. I think that the disruption to the Slayer line is from all the way back in episode 112, um, the name of which I suddenly can't remember. Uh, what was it? The season one finale. Oh, no. Um, I've uh, also gone blank. Prophecy Girl. Yes. Uh, when when Buffy dies temporarily and Xander, you know, revives her. That's what broke the Slayer line. That's why Buffy is technically not the Slayer anymore. And I think that's what disrupted the the thing. Now, I you could question then why in season three did the first not take advantage of that. But I don't know. I, I just I find it hard to believe that resurrecting Buffy is what has messed up the Slayer line because and here's the other in the, the other questionable conclusion that characters come to in these episodes. Um we're repeatedly reminded that 
or, or we're expected to believe that Buffy is the slayer. And so the, the first would take out faith first and then come for Buffy. Like Buffy would be the last one that the first wants to deal with. Um, and that's not how it works anymore. Buffy, you're not the slayer. Faith is the slayer. So in order to ultimately end the slayer line, the first is going to have to deal with all the other slayers, all the potentials and end the whole show on taking out the real slayer who is faith. Ooh, that's a good point. And I like that a lot because faith, you know, faith always gets robbed. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I even think again, memories of season seven spotty at best, but I think there are, examples in the future in, in upcoming episodes, maybe after faith comes back. Cause I know she, she eventually rejoins the season um, where Buffy misrepresents to the potentials, how the Slayer line works. I, like something along the lines of, you know, Buffy telling them if I die, one of you will be called. And, and that's just not, it doesn't work that way. And they know that Buffy knows that Giles knows that everybody knows that at this point, they are just willfully misrepresenting how the whole Slayer thing works at this point. It's like they, it's like what they decided was that there is now just going to be two Slayer lines, but somehow <laughs> having two Slayer lines doesn't disrupt the forces that surround the Slayer. Like I, it, it feels to me like, cause I, I think they are referring to when she gets brought back as disrupting the forces that surrounding the Slayer when she gets brought back by magic because they make that distinction with Tara when Willow can't bring back Tara because she had a natural death and there's natural death and magical death. And I was like, what? Like magical, magical death is not, how is natural death? And you're, you're still dead. (laughs) Right. Like, it's such a kind of like an arbitrary distinction. And I feel like if, if we were to go to the writers and say, well, what, what look at season one, they would say, well, that was a natural death. And this was a magical death. I mean, you know, like, sure. and I think it's such an arbitrary way to make your rules. You're like rules of the universe. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose I, but I don't really, I, I, cause I didn't <laughs> like it with Tara and I don't like it. I think it's weird. I think it's a weird reasoning. Yeah. I think they're stretching. And I mean, I'm okay. I'm not going to suspend my disbelief because of the rules govern in season seven over the rules of the, uh, you know, the Slayer line, I guess. But that doesn't mean that I have to buy it either. The the Terra thing didn't bother you know, me. The Terra thing didn't bother me as much, I guess, as it did you. Um, and I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll let him get away with the hand wavy thing of, when Buffy was resurrected, that was a whole magical thing. I still don't get what that has to do. Like Buffy is not the linchpin in the Slayer line. She, I, theoretically she is, she should at this point be only as important as the potentials. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. I don't understand why anything having happened to Buffy after prophecy girl, why anything would affect the Slayer line as a whole and open this door of opportunity for the first. If, if something happens to Faith, maybe that could affect the whole, whole line. I don't know. No, nobody cares. This is, nit, I, this is nitpicking. I, but, well, it, it makes me so think of when she finds the scythe mm-hmm. and she hands it to Faith and Faith says, I feel like it was made for me, which means it was probably made for you. 
kind of like sums all of this up because yeah i mean it should be faith yeah at this point the spinoff that we were we were all but promised and never got (sighs) but we've got the comic books yes we did so um okay uh let me look at my notes here on this episode um the of course we'll talk about the speechifying here in just a second because this is where it starts this is where it all kicks off but i know i love it um i i wanted to comment on oh wait here's another nitpick um and this is one of those nitpicks that comes up in practically every episode so it's kind of pedantic of me to even bring it up but vampires don't need to breathe so why would spike drown even temporarily that is a good point I mean, I get the fact that he doesn't need to breathe, so the fact that he drowns doesn't actually kill him. But why would he drown in the first place? He doesn't need air, so there's no reason why he should be struggling and sucking in water while his head is being held underwater. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's and that's also kind of interesting, and I have to jump to another episode of Angel. Um, can I do that? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Because of when Angel is like tied in the coffin and put in the water for right. forever, yeah, like that's totally fine. We we're, we're not expected to believe that Angel, you know, just dies while he's underwater, so he doesn't have to deal with everything. <laughs> like that's his like suffering, which is kind of weird that they do like they have these like big. I don't know if this is like a big water moment with Spike, but it's you know. Like he's being tortured in this very specific way, and Angel is tortured in this very specific way, but there's two completely different outcomes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of lines that don't. It's weird. There's a lot of lines that don't connect between the two series. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing that I always wonder. This is one of those things that I. By and large, I let go. I, it doesn't really bother me, but every once in a while, I just notice why is like. Why is Spike panting when, when Spike after Spike gets in a fight or after he chases Buffy down an alley or whatever? Why is he like struggling to catch his breath? You don't breathe, dude. What's <laughs> what's the deal? Or, or when someone punches him in the stomach, why does he like gasp like he's just had the wind knocked out of him? Ah, whatever. I'm, I'm being That's a jerk. A good question. I'm being a jerk. There's no there, there, <laughs> this is not a big deal. Um, I did want to comment that the the big fight at the end of this one uh is in at first I thought it was the same construction site that Xander leads them to in Showtime, but I I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's supposed to be like a factory. It's a very ill-defined, whatever it is, but like it looks like there are some some uh, tracks, uh, like assembly line sort of things in there. I don't know whatever factory they're in. That whole scene with with Buffy desperately trying to get away from the Uber vamp and like she drops all those all those pipes on it and crushes it. Mm-hmm. And as she's limping away, it rises up out of the debris. That's all very Terminator to me. I feel like the whole point of that scene, setting it in a factory, having it climb out from under the, the what looked like the killing blow, that was all meant to evoke uh, the Terminator and just to give us, you know, to upsell the Uber vamp for us. I did not make the Terminator connection, and I really like it. I mean, it would have been perfect if she could have like let it into a into a, a machine press and crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just think those references were there. 
Oh, yeah. I totally buy that. And of all the sort of battle damage that we've seen Buffy sustain over the many seasons, I actually feel like the most effective was at the end of this episode. It was a combination of they really did a great job with the the bruising and the swelling and the the cuts and blood and everything. Like she genuinely looked horribly injured mm-hmm. and, and Buffy's acting there. The, the sheer terror and disbelief in her eyes as she's hearing the people in the other room talk about, well, Buffy was our last hope. What do we do now? Yes. I think all of that is so well done. Yeah. Which leads us to the first of many countless Buffy speeches. Yes. The speech in the dining room. So I have my thoughts on this particular speech, but you go first. You're, you're the, the rhetorical person. This is actually um, one of the speeches that I wrote about in uh, at home in the Whedon verse. Okay. Um, and Buffy's all of Buffy's all of Buffy's speeches take place, particularly in this season, in traditionally female spaces. So the dining room, like like domestic spaces that are associated with women. Mm-hmm. So it's all in like her dining room or kitchen or her bedroom. Like these are where her speeches happen. And this is what Nan Johnson would call parlor rhetoric, because when women could not publicly speak or could not participate in oratory, they would have gatherings in their home where they could talk to each other. And one of the things that's cool about Buffy as a series is that when there's oratory in Buffy, when there are males speaking or giving speeches, they are doing it in a traditional, like, speechifying place. Like, the mayor speaks from a podium, Mm -hmm. the master in the alternate universe uh, opening the blood factory is speaking from a stage, Um, and you've got Jonathan speaking at prom from a stage to give the award to Buffy, but when Buffy gives speeches, they're all from female spaces. Interesting. And her speeches are the ones that are the most effective throughout the series. Yeah. Text- and that is textually, why I yes. Love season seven. <laughs> textually, yes. I would argue. <laughs> I would argue if factually that is true, but. Um... Yeah, that's great. I don't think I'd heard the term uh, parlor rhetoric before. That's great. Um, so my thoughts on this particular speech, it's not actually her first speech, but in terms of season seven, the grand oratory season, this is the one that kicks it off. Um, I didn't feel like this speech was anything particularly special. It felt like um, any one of the the rallying the troops speeches and in previous seasons. Um, I mean, it was slightly more effectual because as I, as I said, she, she genuinely looks injured, like dangerously hurt at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does channel some of that emotion into the way she's delivering the speech. And that was, that's great. But just in terms of its, of the speech's content, I was like, all right, well, this is, it just feels like a, a typical Buffy, they don't know what they're dealing with. We will figure out a way we always do or whatever. feels like one of her usual speeches. I I know it's, this is the one that sets the ball rolling and they just never bleeding stop from here. 
but oh no they really don't because we've got another one coming up in showtime <laughs> yes which uh we'll get to that but but just for the record i think that one actually works better i actually quite like her speech in showtime um and i think that's a better speech too like this would really does it is very much a rallying of the troops i think the reason this speech works is because it's it's unexpected almost given like with everybody saying, you know, we, my plan was Buffy and that's out. Now we got to move on to plan B. What are we going to do? Um, I mean, you know, not quite like that, Yeah. but Giles is obviously more tactful and British. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's really, cause this one is really short. Um, all things considered. Because I managed to write down, I think, almost the whole speech. And she's still ending on this. They like to end on this. Um, like, this one ends with, any questions? Mm -hmm. Done. Uh, these very dramatic kind of tropes. Right. Which is interesting, too. Um, but it's not what you expect her to say when she comes out and says, we are going to... One of the things that I find interesting about this one is she says, we just became an army. We just declared war, which is um, a per performative speech. Mm -hmm. Like when you, you marry somebody, like you, what, what, by saying it, you do it. And you don't see that very often in Buffy. Yeah. General Buffy is another term I remember from the conversations around uh, season seven. That uh, yeah. she she starts to get very general like and um I don't know if you yourself remember my personal feelings on Buffy Summers but I'm not her biggest I'm not that character's biggest fan and when she tends to lose me the most is when she starts getting like really uh righteous and and general like <laughs> so I I feel like uh it's I'm in for a rough ride for the rest yeah. of the season. I, I feel they try to kind of like rein that in, but it, yeah, yeah, ish. It's only <laughs> the raining is only ish. Ish, okay. Um, yeah. Well, let's move fully into showtime, uh, and where we meet some more potentials, including Felicia Day, um, who I guess was unknown enough at the time that no one really like none of the articles I've read or or. Like nobody mentions her as a standout, whereas if she popped up in one of our genre shows today, we'd be like, "Hey, Felicia Day, I love her." Uh, what was this her first? I don't know. Show? I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know either. Let me look. Because it here. might be her first. Um, this might be her first television appearance. Period. Let's see what the old reliable Wikipedia tells me. Um, she was in. Okay, so what year? is this this uh is 2002 is when these mm -hmm. episodes aired so she her film career started in 2001 in something called strings i don't know what that is um nothing nothing after that till 2003 her tv career started emerald in 2001 maybe it's me 2002 and buffy in 2003 okay so it was it was it was pretty early mm -hmm. in her career. So I Showtime guess that... was January seventh, two thousand three. What was? 
Uh, Showtime was January 7th of 2003. Oh, we had jumped. That's yep. an, that's okay. Well, that explains why they said it. Or I guess that's why they said it around Christmas other than to tie it into amends um, when the first mm-hmm. was around. But uh, the, the timeline of season seven seems to be pretty jumpy and skippy because each episode feels like it's meant to take place almost immediately following the previous episode and several times now so far we've had an episode that actually sort of time and date stamps these episodes like uh i think conversations with dead people was set in september um or maybe november i think i don't remember but uh november november okay but i i don't know it just feels like like the episode before before these uh it didn't feel like we were anywhere near christmas and now in an episode that appears at least to be set only a day or two after um all of a sudden we're creeping right up on christmas yep and that actually makes a lot of sense too because watching it um isolated from the rest of the show especially i was just like man that uber vamp wasn't all that uber after all was it (laughs) Yeah, I remembered him being a lot tougher. I thought it. La- I thought that Uber Vamp lasted more than two episodes. Yeah, I did too. Um, okay, so uh, new, new potentials. Um, what are your thoughts on this episode? Um, I well, I actually wrote down a potential arrives finally a black girl. Yes. Uh, and her name is Rona. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which so, wasn't meant to be funny, but it is now. But it is now. Um, and she is one of the potentials that has a little bit more personality yes. than the other potentials. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. Because um, then we also meet Kennedy. And Kennedy does have a tendency to like steal the potential show. Mm-hmm. And when I first... I will say this. Like... Because Kennedy has historically annoyed me a lot. Okay. But you're you're not alone. Not, you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. I there's Yeah. <laughs> the the actress the actress Iari Lyman uh famously got a lot of uncalled for fan interactions from people that hated her because they didn't like her character. Aw. Yeah. Boo. Well, I will say that watching it again, especially, and I don't know if it's like the pandemic affecting me, but when she's like, give me a weapon and she's being all Kennedy, I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like, like, believe her. She's ready to do some stuff. Like, give that, give that woman a weapon. Yeah. With, with these two episodes under her belt at this point, I am not, I am not yet annoyed by Kennedy. I honestly don't remember how annoyed I ever was by Kennedy. I just remember that Kennedy was a very controversial character that everybody seemed to hate. Um, So it'll be interesting on this rewatch to see if I ever develop a problem with the character of Kennedy. Um, There were some bits where I was like, I was like reminded of my annoyance when she was like, let me see you float something mm -hmm. or, Oh, the wing of my house. (laughs) Right. Uh, that like, oh. that was just that felt just like clumsy uh <laughs> exposition or whatever. Um the whole, you know, my my half sister slept in a separate wing or whatever. 
Our house in the Hamptons didn't have a wing, though. Right. And I feel like none of that really comes back up. They were like, well, that was a little, uh, we don't need to like beat people over the head with, yes, we have a rich potential. Mm -hmm. It is an, it is a weird detail for them to throw in there and it to not have not mean anything. Like if I were watching this totally fresh, I would expect that to have some, it'd be like Chekhov's money, (laughs) whatever, like Chekhov's uh, poor little rich girl, because I would expect the only reason for them to establish that this character comes from money from a family with money is for that family or that money to play a role in a future episode. And it does. And nothing ever really, it's weird. Yeah. And I'm not, and I also, I'm just not interested in it. Like if they had (laughs) brought in like a homeless slayer, that would have been cool. Right. Or like a homeless potential. Like I'd be interested in her story. Um, well, I mean, that's one of the things that makes Rona uh, the most interesting of the group at this point is that uh, I, well, I mean, at this point, I don't know what her life was. She might have been homeless, but what she was, what, she, what we know she was, is someone who did not have a watcher and didn't know anything about this until, like, l- literally now, like very, very recently. Um, and so she is completely clueless, uh, whereas the rest of them at least have had, they've each had a watcher for at least a short amount of time. I think that's right. Rona's doesn't Rona say she never had a watcher. Right. And I feel like all of her reactions, like with that make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But I feel like her character gets used to just like further like exposition or narrative in a way that's not entirely fair because she ends up becoming kind of like the, the like pushback, Mm. complainer i don't want to do this but why on earth would you like this is a this isn't a good situation to to be in you've got no guarantees right like it's one of the first things she says when she gets attacked off the bus is they told me i'd be safe here yeah and she had just been attacked again i mean yeah i don't remember uh rona's journey from here on out so i don't remember what my thoughts on her were at the time, but uh, at the moment, like you tell me that she becomes the pushback character, that kind of ish. That they could all... that could almost be racially. <laughs> I mean, that could be a stereotype potentially. Oh, I could totally see Whedon doing that too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's unfortunate, but at the moment, I I agree with you. Her her behavior in this moment is. 100% believable and understandable. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, in the future, if she is boiled down to if so, Molly is the is the Cockney accent and Rona is the pushback girl. I mean, that's yeah, they're putting her into an angry black woman. Yeah, role. That's unfortunate if that's really how this plays out. Um, so uh, another new potential that we meet this time around is Eve and to once again get a little dig in at the first, how exactly does the first impersonate Eve for, I guess, several days in the Summer's house without ever once noticeably not touching anyone or anything? Like when we very first see her, um, her and Vi and uh, Chloe, is that the other one? 
Yes. Okay. So the three of them are like lying in sleeping bags on the floor, listening to uh, Molly tell a story or whatever. And they're all like lying, like really close to each other. And Eve is in the middle. And I'm like, so over the last two or three days, they've been physically close to Eve. Like if one of them just leans to the right, they would bump into her, but she's not really there. So how do they explain that? It's, I mean, it's hard enough for me to imagine her walking around the house and never bumping into anything or touching anything or never having to open a drawer or whatever. Um, but when she's like having a slumber party with the other potentials, how on earth does nobody notice that? Well, also, and she wouldn't be fighting because Kennedy brings up fighting for bathroom time. Yes. Yeah. So does nobody notice that Eve is not fighting for bathroom time? Right. Right. (laughs) That she doesn't shower. These are the types of things we're not supposed to think about. (laughs) Um, So I noticed Kennedy is the first potential that we see kill anybody. She is. Yeah. When they're running from the house and uh, she shoots one of the bringers in the head with a crossbow. Yep. Um, I don't know how long that lasts. I don't remember. I, I know by the end of the series, the potentials are right there in the thick of it and are fighting the Uber vamps or whatever. But I don't know. I don't remember how long that takes before we ever see any of them get physical with a monster. Mm, I, I'm not sure when we see that again. I'm looking through the uh, the episode list. Well, it doesn't matter. Kennedy beat him to the punch. She she gets the award for first. I I think that's why I like Kennedy more this go round. Like it's it's little stuff like that. Like she, I mean, yeah, she's like wing of the house and <laughs> whatnot. But she is making some like, you know, this is my situation. And granted, she knows about her situation. Like she's been versed in this um, and fighting. She's had some training, but she's ready to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I like her in these episodes. I also. And it's it is. And I do wonder if it's not a sort of pandemic reaction, too, (laughs) because it's one of those things like we're dealing with like bad leadership and bad governance. Um, And maybe this kind of ties in with Buffy the general, like (laughs) being willing to fight and to take that role on is more important to me now than I think it was in 2003. Yeah, probably. Um, I also know that uh, a, a lot of fan. Uh, one of the issues that's brought up with um, Kennedy a lot is that she's she's just obviously meant to be a replacement for Tara. It's just they just throw Willow a bone by a- adding another, you know, lesbian or bisexual character in there to give her a a pity relationship or whatever. Um, which I don't know. We'll see as it goes on. If I think that that's uh, irrational or unfair of fans to claim but i will say in these two episodes uh maybe her convert maybe her her flirting with willow is a slightly over the top but i'm thinking of moments like when uh when willow is putting up that 
uh, barrier to keep the the Turrican, the Uber vamp from getting them. And uh, Willow is, as we find out, pretending to struggle <laughs> with the, that barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, Kennedy's like, it, it's hurting her or whatever. And I don't know, that seemed like a genuine reaction. There was there were a couple times where Kennedy seemed to express concern over Willow that to me, at least on this rewatch, didn't feel like it was forced or, or you know, ham-fisted or whatever. It, it felt like they were genuinely building up a trait that this character has. I do feel that she is genuinely concerned. And I don't, like, I do feel that she is very, like, sexually aggressive towards Willow, mm-hmm. but that doesn't bother me. Like, I, I feel that it's, I, and I do feel that she was criticized for that at one point, um, for being too, like, aggressive or too forceful or too obviously flirty. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, women can be aggressive and yeah. obviously flirty. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Um, it's really more the, the just, like, weird, like, you know, classism kind of stuff. That it, that's like eee, gross, and I mean, I know that Tara was wonderful, yes. and it is kind of like, can we replace Tara? No, obviously never. Yeah, I don't know. That uh... I can see why people would dislike, like people would dislike Willow having another relationship, because mm-hmm. I mean, you just. It'll never be the it, same. It seems it's, I, I think the complaint generally was too soon or whatever, you know, it's like does she, and, and maybe that's true. I was, I was going to say, um, it'll be interesting to see how I feel as the season goes on. If I, if the, the Kennedy Willow relationship seems necessary is maybe too strong a word, but you know, w- was it rushed? Was it, was it forced in here because they wanted the series to go out with Willow having a new girlfriend? Um, that is the thing that's kind of weird because we don't see any other relationships that are really super forced like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Like you don't see anybody like, okay, Xander absolutely has to be matched with somebody right. for good. Finally, let's do this. Like, cause it always like, he never really ends up with anybody, but that's not an, issue and like with Buffy it's still kind of I mean you know there's some stuff going on she's got some you know soulful vampires that she's dealing with yeah (laughs) Um, but it is weird that it's like Willow isn't allowed to end the season single yeah she's if I'm right if I remember correctly she's the only one that ends the series like technically in a relationship well i mean i think faith and robin hook up but i don't know if that counts i mean (laughs) it's faith and robin right yeah (laughs) um all right so what else about this episode um i well one of the things that I think is interesting is that they have this telepathy trick and it's like, you guys don't use this all the time. Right. Uh, I have seen some pushback on that. I've seen like in particular, I've seen a couple people complain. Why, how was Buffy able to start that? Um, Cause you know, Willow should be the 
Willow's the magic one. She's the one that should be able to establish tele a telepathic link. And I would, and they're like, you know, she's the one that's always had to do it in the past. And I actually use that as a defense. Like I actually argue. So I love that reveal. I absolutely love the way that played out, especially if you rewatch the episode right away and, and get to see them the first time through when you're not, when you don't know that's what's going on. Um, I don't know. I just love that reveal. And I love the way that works. And I would argue that because Willow has pulled this trick at least twice before that I can think of, uh, where she links everybody telepathically so they can coordinate their attacks, um, that I think it's it's pretty easy for my mind, at least, to make the, the jump to, at this point, she's sort of established a connection between the three of them that's sort of always available. Which doesn't answer your complaint, I suppose, which is why don't you do this all the time? Like, wouldn't that be fun? It would be, it would be fun. It would be super fun. Because um, I do. I do really like this. I think it's really nifty. Yeah. I mean, you're a comic book fan, so I'm sure you, you're familiar with, uh, you know, the comic book history of this kind of thing. Like, I'm an X-Men fan from way back, and this is something that the X-Men one of the advantages they had was they've always got a telepath on their team and they always coordinate their attacks by having the telepath link everybody together. So it, it's yeah. an, it's an awesome trick and I love seeing it. And, I, and it falls apart a little bit when you're like, yeah, it is super cool and super effective. And why don't they do it in every episode? <laughs> but uh, for this episode, at least I actually, I really, really liked that. I really loved that. I and I have no pro. I always get like when Buffy like kind of starting the conversation that she's able to do that because Willow is just so like has so much magic that she's just kind of like in tune mm -hmm. with the world around her in mystical ways that she's kind of like a a mystical. I can't say the name because it's sitting on my desk, but it starts with an A. The, uh, what? <laughs> that she's like a Alexa. Oh. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I was like, what? Do you have a cat named something here? What's happening? I had to make sure she didn't start like talking and trying to like tell me, add things to my cart. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Which she has done before. Yes. <laughs> I've, uh, I've had, well, I can't, I can't say it. Siri. I've had Siri open up on me before when I'm just saying something that sounds even remotely like that. I ended up with a whole bunch of cheese in my cart once. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Random. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So you already mentioned the bell jocks eye, and, uh, let's see. I like the fact. So just like earlier, I said the, the sort of cheesy sets are kind of part of the charm of this show at this point. Um, even though all through this process, I, I never miss an opportunity to roll my eyes at the cheesy physical, you know, the cheesy practical effects, the crazy rubber monsters that they uh, have our heroes fight. Um, for some reason, this time it really hit me as charming. I was like, for just the briefest of seconds, when they walk in and you see Bell Jocks's eye floating there in a cage, I was like, holy crap, that's horrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that only lasted a split second. And then I was like, man, this is really... I love this stuff. Like I love the goofy 
terrible rubber monsters on this show. I, I pick on them and I, and I, I make fun of them all the time, but ultimately I really think it's, it's a charming aspect of the show. Well, and they've got the spotlight and the fan. Like, yeah. It's just so great. It was, it was, that whole thing was staged like a, a high school, high school production. <laughs> like at one point, the light is supposed to just be ambient it's not supposed to be a spotlight. It's supposed to be just light that lights them up. But when they first stumble into frame, you can clearly see it shining on the floor <laughs> that they're walking on. And, and um, I think at one point, maybe you can even see some of the wires that are holding up the whole bell Jocks's eye. Um, which I also liked the fact that it's not just a, a multifaceted eye floating in a cage. The eye part is caged, but it's connected to something massive that just disappears off in the darkness. So like Mm -hmm. there's, there's some part of it that you can't see. And for some reason, only this eye thing is in a cage. I, um, I pulled out my old DVDs to watch these. Uh So I didn't get to see if there was anything like if they'd recut the, the film or if the formatting was differently, because I know when they moved angel to Netflix, they changed the formatting of angel so especially in like the first season, you could see on sides of of various scenes uh-huh. the microphones and cameras and stuff that yep. would have been cut out on the the DVD version, but made it into the Netflix version. Yeah, the the I'm watching I'm watching Buffy on Netflix and or Hulu. I'm sorry, I'm watching it on Hulu and uh, the there have been several times over the the course of this rewatch where you'll see a boom mic, or I think at one point you even see a cameraman holding a camera in the background. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's happened a few times. I don't remember that happening. But it wasn't in this episode. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know if that's anything that happened there. I I think, except maybe for the fact that you could see the light glint off the fishing line or whatever that was holding the eye up. (laughs) I think everything else was meant to be there. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, we already talked about the the information that they get from Beljox's eye and and whether they interpret it correctly. I guess we're I guess we're coming down on the side of the show meant for us to believe that it's the resurrection that did it, right? I think it was supposed to be the resurrection, but it is weird, and I think it does like like having to constantly like do these things to reveal information i mean we always kind of get that with the big bad like the learning curve and the research and finding out what's going on Mm -hmm. but all these parameters for the first like i don't know (laughs) like i like the first one enough but there's also like mm, like what a what a what a baddie to bring back and to make your big bad than the thing that made angel sad in the snow that one time (laughs) (laughs) the the miracle snow episode yeah i do the thing i do like about the first is i like all of the different actors being able to be the first yes and show off some more of their acting chops and that is a cool it was it was thrilling it was thrilling to get juliet landau back to have trusilla back um even though the and I'm sure this was an intent was intentional. I'm sure the writers have a, a tight enough handle on how Drusilla speaks and behaves. And if not, I'm sure Juliet Landau has a, you know, a firm enough grasp on that character that this sort of 
her weird behavior, her slightly inconsistent behavior here was intentional. It's just that the first does its best to mimic people, but mm -hmm. it's not actually channeling their real personalities, I guess. Because, um, like, the big thing that stood out to me is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that Drew ever refers to Spike as daddy. Angel, I don't think so. Angel is daddy. Spike mm -hmm. is her boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It just seemed it it actually effectively, in my in my opinion, effectively looked like somebody pretending to be Drew, and and Spike even says she's crazier than you are. Yeah. So. It what? is one of the things we see enough of. I think the the sh the first shifting forms that I do think like. Uh, never seeing Tara as the first or the first as Tara just it always seems like such a terrible yeah. omission yeah. and I know that they couldn't make it happen and they worked around it the best that they could but uh, that's like the biggest thing in season 7 for me yep I mean um, again I think yeah it would have been conversations with dead people so it was Eric and I talking mm -hmm. about how how unfortunate that was and how it is really jarring. And you could clearly tell that the writers had to come up with, you know, a quick save. Like they had to, they had to scramble to figure out an explanation for why we could never see Tara. And so even though it felt like, even though it was obviously a, a patch that they came up with, I think that they did the best that they could. Like they, their rat, the show's rationalization is that, um, actually, do I even remember what it was at this point? Um, that, well, the first told Willow that she would not be able to talk to Tara because Willow had killed people. There was something about the, the rules that she wasn't allowed to see her, you know, her dearest love because mm -hmm. she had committed so many evil acts. So that was its explanation to Willow for why it was appearing as um the character whose name i can't remember all of a sudden uh cassie yes um but i guess that doesn't answer the the real question of why the first doesn't ever appear as tara because i mean if the first really wants to mess with willow who i mean let's face it willow is like the most powerful person in this show mm -hmm. like not doing that is weird that just that goes to um the the first is not a very good villain school of thought yes absolutely <laughs> i i have a i have a growing file of uh of documents to to that effect um speaking of willow's the most powerful in the group um i don't remember if it was showtime or bring on the night but in one of these episodes when willow is trying to do the locator spell and she gets momentarily possessed. That was, they've done scenes like that many times over the course of the show. Um, some of them more effective than others. This one was genuinely shocking and actually frightening. There was something about how quickly it happened and how, um, how like forceful and in control the first scene, like it blows Anya back against the wall and she's out. Uh, it, mm -hmm. d it barely even takes a breath before it wipes Buffy out. And 
I don't know. Scenes like that have been played out before, and sometimes they're kind of cool. Sometimes they're kind of cheesy. This time I thought was genuinely something about it was genuinely, you know, scary. Oh yeah. And I feel that they like that's setting some groundwork for uh, the first and Caleb's interactions, but you really get to see the power, like what the first can do with access to real power. Yeah. Which asks, which, (laughs) so this just opens up a whole other, uh, I'm adding a new file now to my, the first is an idiot uh, thing. (laughs) So, you know, in conversations with dead people, the first was trying to get its thing was it was trying to get Willow to kill herself. That was the gambit it was playing. Yep. Um, and I thought that that made sense because Willow's the most powerful. Like Willow is the one it feels the most threatened by at the moment. So it doesn't need her confused or or, you know, lost or scared. It needs her dead. It needs her off the board. Um, but now I'm wondering if the first could be could manifest that powerfully by taking over Willow, why isn't that the only thing it's trying to do? Isn't it weird? Like it's like this is like this is how I can get to the most powerful person or use the most powerful person, but no, I'm not gonna do any of that. Right. I'm just gonna torment Spike. Yes, okay. So and 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 the first says like I still have a use for you and all this stuff to Spike, but the first doesn't have a use for Willow. Right. So I do want to ask you, uh, as I think I've asked every one of my guests this season, um, does the Spike thing ever pay off? Because my question that at this point, not remembering if there's any payoff on this whole, the first really really wants to have Spike in its camp. Um, my question is why. Why is it spending so much damn time and effort trying to turn Spike to its will um, when it seems so willing to mess with the others, you know, for a few minutes? And then if they if they don't cave, it's like, oh, well, better luck next time. But it is so invested in Spike. It is super weird. And I mean, the uh, Spike for me in this season does two things um, that are particularly important. And one is the night where he just holds Buffy Mm -hmm. and that convinces her to go back to the vineyard. Okay. I don't remember a vineyard, but I think this is when she's been kicked out of her house. Yep. Okay. And she goes back to uh, get the scythe. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then the other part is the amulet. Right. And both of those things are so ephemeral in so many ways. I couldn't imagine that the the possib- the potential of Spike doing these two actions like which are are, are it's it's kind of random that he gets the amulet and it's kind of random that he ends up, you know, being in a position where he can offer this this strength and comfort to Buffy in this way when she most needs it to make this chain of events happen that that could somehow be more important than Willow right and her power like it's so weird because i mean yes these are but but as a just straight up like power source he's just a bad vampire i mean and now that he has a soul he's a liter- he's literally a bad vampire <laughs> <laughs> right 
I mean, the first obviously has it out for vampires with souls. He he went after Angel. Right. But. So but, yeah. is it just supposed to be some sort of like like petty thing? I, like I, you're supposed to be on my side, but you've got a soul now, so I'm just gonna maybe, you know torture you. Maybe I don't know. It uh, it doesn't make any sense to me, and uh, I, I'm trying to come up with some sort some sort of fan wank, some explanation. I want there to be an explanation because I I. I need an excuse for why we've wasted so much of Spike's screen time on him being chained to a wall and tortured and drowned and carved into. And all. I mean, so there was so much potential for the Spike with a soul storyline. And I feel like it's utterly wasted in this season. It real they do spend an awful lot of time with that and with all the um, kind of sleeper mm-hmm. stuff, which is, is, is fine. But I mean, there's, there's more that could happen there. Yeah. Like, I feel like all of that was rushed. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm in season seven for the speeches <laughs> and for the finale. Cause chosen is fabulous. Oh course. man. I can't. But, I, so, so my, but you can wait. You, yeah. You yeah. Yeah. Your... No, I, I'll just tell you my, my, my guest list for, <laughs> for the final episode is already, is already full. Um, I can't, I can't add any more to the list. I, I will just tell you, I can't wait to get everybody's feedback on what goes down in the discussion of the series finale. I can't wait to find out how much grief I get from my guests. <laughs> so, um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm right. I think I'm really overselling this. I really think <laughs> people that know me probably already know this big secret that I'm refusing to reveal on the mic, but, uh, at any rate, it'll be fun to see it play out on a podcast. Uh, so the scene with, um, well, we never even talked about, okay. So we talked about the whole telepathy thing and that was all so that they could come up with this plan. And, and this, I said that the speech in this one, I feel like is more effective than the last one. So that whole thing at the end with, it went on a bit long. There were an awful lot of, uh, camera angle back and forths of Buffy and the Uber vamp trading blows. Like there was one scene that went on for like eight or nine punches consecutively. And I was like, all right, we get it. <laughs> Move on, please. <laughs> but that whole scene was pretty cool with her using that as a, as a, a lesson for the potentials. I liked that. I, I liked that the group came up with that plan and they knew what they were doing and that it worked. One could argue the, physics of her being able to sever that vampire's head with the wire without also severing her fingers off of her hands, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's being super she's got that, that slayer healing <laughs> right. thing that I, I, she just regenerates faster than the sure. Duracon. Sure. Um, anyways. Yeah. And the, so, and so the speech that she gives at that, I didn't write any of the, these speeches down. Cause I'm, I just don't have the willpower, but um, <laughs> I, I really genuinely did like her speech at that point. And, I like it a lot too. And I like that, you know, I like the Thunderdome frame. Yes. Yes. And, and that, I like that it's the site of the, uh, the new public library, right? which the library is such an important space in Buffy that this speech and this like revitalization of the potentials happens in the the unconstructed future library site. I mean, speaks of potential, which is kind of cool. I'm 
I just want to comment that this season has ruined the words first and potential. Yeah. Because every one of these conversations, I, re I refer to something as, oh, this is the first time. Oh, I can't say first anymore. Or I, I just want to talk about the potential of something. And I have, I have to say, ah, see what I did there? I have to call it out every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know if that ever goes away. Mm, I, probably not. <laughs> um, so maybe my favorite moment from this episode, I don't know if this is true, but probably because it's Spike, um, is the very end when the real Buffy comes to free Spike and just James Marster's performance as he gradually realizes that he's not being fooled again, that this is actually the real Buffy, and he kind of breaks down and falls into her arms. That was very touching. I'm a sap for for any example of Spike having genuine human emotions. Yes. I love the ending, and I love um, that he kept his faith. Mm-hmm. And that he was rewarded for that faith. Yeah. Like, it was true. And I'm glad that you reminded me of the like his role later in the season which is to be the one who comforts her and, and gives her strength when she's been kicked out by everybody else um I, d I don't know if if this is a defensible point of view but at this particular moment at least i'm taking some small comfort in believing that that gives spike a purpose in the season <laughs> like there's a reason for him to be here it's the payoff to all of the one could possibly argue slightly out of character concern that Buffy has shown for Spike this entire season. Um, the reason why she's been so eager to, to rescue him and help him and make sure that he's okay. Um, and the payoff is that he gives her the strength she needs to, to get back up after she's been knocked down by even her closest friends. That's, that's how I read it. I, when I first watched it, I didn't read it that way. Um, but after watching it 800,000 times, um, <laughs> when I was dissertating, I would just put on Buffy uh -huh. and let Buffy play as I wrote my dissertation. So 800,000 is about right. Okay. Um, <laughs> you got me beat. But like, <laughs> well, I, I wasn't always, I was actually writing the dissertation part during mo most of that, at least half of it. <laughs> Did did you did you <laughs> but like I do think that that's his like that that's what he does and that like it gets really glossed over like the next day because he's like you up and left and I can see why a a a gal would leave a bloke to get a shiny toy or something oh and goodness. she like yells at him for like two seconds and she's like you don't understand what you gave me and then they just kind of go along the rest of the episode mm -hmm. but like it's it's like an exchange that's like a minute hmm. um so i have to ask you did you did you give your dissertation in buffy voice no but i should have yeah you should have you should have channeled yeah. buffy and and actually delivered it as general buffy <laughs> you, should, <laughs> you should have speechified the whole thing we could have all, I could have had everybody over to my house and we all could have stood in the dining room. Yes. Yeah. And I could have explained it. <laughs> yep. Well, maybe next time. 
Maybe next time. Maybe next time. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, anything else? Anything we haven't covered or anything you want to comment on? The um, One of the things that has always struck me that I've never really known what to do with, but that I've always found really interesting is when Buffy gives her speech um, as she, you know, she, she goes to battle the Turrican and she says that I'm the thing that monsters have nightmares about mm -hmm. and you and me are going to show them why. And then, you know, dust just like the rest of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, she says, if we all do our parts, we'll be the ones left standing here endeth the lesson, which I always thought was super interesting because when Spike yes. teaches her. Yep. That's what he says to her. Yeah. Um, actually, this episode begins with her saying, welcome to the Hellmouth." Yes. And yeah, I'd forgotten about the here endeth the lesson, which uh, that was fool for love, right? I think yes. Yeah, when when Spike was teaching her how he fought two slayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if that's supposed to be like more commentary on this uh, relationship that she has developed with Spike, and how deep it is in ways that they don't know how to articulate. It just you know how like when you pick up on people's phrases and you mm -hmm. do it unconsciously. I mean, any fan of Joss Whedon is completely aware of that right <laughs> that yes truth <laughs> yeah yeah um i don't know that's a great read i would love to read i i am from now on choosing to read it that way um i, I think it's also part of the so one of the fun things about the early season seven one of the reasons why i liked season seven at the beginning um was the back to the beginning aspect of it they were they made a big point of how we're going back to the beginning and they brought back like the first few episodes were, they were back in school kind of, <laughs> they, uh, there were monsters of the week. They, you know, the group was all friendly again and communicating. And, um, there were constant little references to things from like the early seasons, the first one or two seasons. Um, and so like her saying, welcome to the Hellmouth." I think not only is a a pretty cool callback thematically, um, even though it's not the first, it would make more sense for her to have said that in the first episode of the season, but like, I get it. I get its placement. So not only is it thematically cool, but it's also a, a going back to the beginning and here end of the lesson could be the same thing. It's just another callback, but I really, I like your read on it. So that's how, that, that's the truth of it for me now. It's her uh, her unexamined uh, connection to Spike. Yay! Yay! It's you know, and he's teaching her about defeating slayers, and she's teaching potentials about defeating vampires. Yeah, yeah. So it's also like it also makes sense that some unconscious uh, bit would float up. Because yeah. it's kind of similar situations. Now I'm trying to find some significance to the phrase float up. I'm not coming up with anything. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was trying to tie that into an, uh, another episode. Um, yeah. Well, I think my last note, the last note I have here uh, is just, I've got it under my reasons why the first is the worst <laughs> file. Um, but this is actually. I love that you have this file. <laughs> This is actually, I mean, it's kind of a metaphorical file, but I'm, I'm 
every episode my notes are filled with reasons why the first is just terrible um but this is it's actually more for the scoobies i will i will suggest to the scoobies helpfully if they're listening that from now on whenever somebody comes into the house just shake their hand like literally just every just have a have a rule that every 20 minutes everybody that is in the room with you has to stand up and you all have to shake hands and pat each other on the back real easy way to tell if anyone in the house is the first yeah that hmm although they may not want to shake rona's hand <laughs> well poor rona <laughs> yeah she she can't help her name she, she needs to be distanced from the group yeah <laughs> All right. Well, unless there's anything else that you had. Um, um, I don't think so. I, let's see, I'm trying, I wish I had more to say about Andrew because I do, I mean, I, I love Andrew because he's the comedic character, but I, I hate Andrew because he killed my beloved Jonathan. But, um, oh, you said when you were talking about how, uh, you mentioned the Thunderdome aspect of like that final fight. Yeah. And I I was like and Andrew for a brief shining moment got to feel like he was part of the group. I mean, no one interacted with him. <laughs> Nobody probably even heard him say it, but it just earlier he had said I'm so alone because he tried to say something to Dawn and she what did he say to her? Oh, he was talking about uh um the James Bond films. And uh she didn't get it. And he was like, I am so alone. And so when, so when Buffy makes a Thunderdome reference and he's like, two men enter, one man leaves, he finally felt like he was in the right place. And then he and Xander kind of had a bonding moment, sort of in air quotes over the whole Wonder Woman. Oh, I love that. Comic. Yeah. And I love that exchange he has with Dawn that you were just talking about when she's like, you shouldn't have killed your only friend. Right. And she's like, and then she's like, Buffy said, I can kill you if you talk too much. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. Buffy said, if you talk too much, I'm allowed to kill you. That's just so great. Uh, yeah. I've always been a Dawn fan, but I like her in this season. I like her in this season too. Like, I feel like, like, Going back and rewatching with Dawn, like she really is the perfect teenager most of the time, which makes her so annoying. Right. And but that's like her job. Mm -hmm. And here she has like you see how she has grown past that like teenagery dumb into personhood. Yes. Yes. <laughs> She's finally human. Um like literally. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's so it's so like like Dawn's like character growth is so satisfying in this season in a lot of ways. And she's the one I also like that she is used for like little epiphany moments. Like she was the one that says, you know, um, it was you. You guys planned all this. Right. And actually, um, she, you can see her putting that together a few minutes before she says that, too. Mm -hmm. You can see her. She has she's like tilting her head and she's starting to work it out even before like Buffy jumps into the fray or whatever. There's a part of me that hates to do this to you, but yeah. you could say that it dawned on her. Oh, thank you so much that <laughs> there's no possible way I could end the episode on a higher note than that. <laughs> so, uh, Vicki, thank you so much for waiting patiently for me for two years to finally get you back on the podcast Oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Um, I, I'm 
I'm almost positive the rest of the the rest of Buffy is tied up, but Angel's right around the corner, and uh, so I, I feel like there's plenty of openings in the in the Angel episodes. So you will definitely be coming back to talk Angel with me, which is the only Fabulous. reason I'm here. It's the only reason I'm doing this is so we can talk about Angel. <laughs> but, there's uh, so much to say about Angel. Yes, yes. So uh, thank you for joining me. Do you uh, would you like to tell the listeners how they can stalk you online? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Instagram and on Instagram, I am notorious VIC. And Excellent. that is, that is notorious like knitting. So it's with a K. Oh, even better. N-I-T-O-R-I-O-U-S-V-I-C. And I'm on Instagram. Nope. I am on Instagram. I'm on, what else am I on? I'm on Twitter. <laughs> um, and on Twitter, I'm something different because obviously that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> and it is Technopoesis. Do I not follow you on Twitter? Um, I don't recognize that name. No, oh, then maybe mostly if most of what I tweet is Instagram. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, so Instagram was a line too far. My my I'm old and angry at technology. Now I'm not taking another step. <laughs> Well, that is fair. I've drawn the line at Facebook and Twitter this this far, no further. But um, I actually don't even think that's true. I think I actually have an Instagram account. I just don't don't ever ever do anything with it. But I'm on Facebook too, so I can be stalked there as well. Okay, and it's just my name. There you go. Um, and I will have to track you down on Twitter. Shame on me. I I was telling another guest this earlier that. Uh, I have this real disconnect between people's real names and their like Twitter handles. And so many times when I'm, when there's a guest on the show and I'm like, do you want to tell the fans how they can stalk you online? And, and they go on to reveal their Twitter name. I have to, I have to cover my mouth because I'm like, Oh, is that who you are? <laughs> because I obviously I follow people on Facebook and almost everybody, you know, everybody goes by their real name on Facebook and I follow them on Twitter and I don't often put the two together. So I have tried to introduce people before and drawn a complete blank yeah. because all of a sudden all I could think of is their handle. Yes. And I and I know their actual name. I've known it at some point, but all I can think of is their handle and you can't introduce somebody as their handle in real life to somebody not yet I, yeah that's true not we're yet. getting there we are getting there <laughs> yep okay so thank you again and uh thank you all at home for listening you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com uh you can subscribe to the show on itunes for as long as itunes is still around which i don't know how much longer that will be um if you do that please rate us or write us a review that really helps people find the show. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on what we've been talking about here, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook. And I, I think we're cons with dead on Facebook. I really, I'm, I'm every week. I'm, my brain is deteriorating and I cannot remember what we are on Facebook. Uh, cons with dead conversations with dead people. You'll find us. Um, Next week, author and philosophy professor James Rocha returns. Uh, he's going to help me make sense of episodes 712, Potential, 713, The Killer in Me, and 714, First Date. Uh, first Date is the only one of those that I think I remember what it is. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, until then, Gerarg, everybody. Gerarg. Gerarg.
Bye.